Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next generation WAF, RASP, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences web protection platform. Signal Sciences, protecting applications, connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Layered Insight is the industry's first embedded security approach for containers. Trusted by Global 1000 Enterprises to secure their containerized applications, it's the only solution that requires no root privileges, has zero dependency on the underlying infrastructure, and is fully portable across any container environment. Unified DevOps and SecOps, enabling the rapid development of containerized applications without worrying about security. To learn more, please visit layeredinsight.com forward slash ASW. Welcome back, everyone, to Application Security Weekly. This is the news for episode six. Uh, so, Paul, I know that we were just kind of talking a little bit about different operating systems, and uh, I'm sure you probably are somewhat glad you're not on a MacBook because it turns out that uh, Mac apps, even if they're sandboxed, can record your screen at any time without you knowing. That's interesting. I hadn't seen this story um... Is this uh like did this break just yesterday or did I, I probably just missed it? It is recent. It is like uh, some some news that a researcher had looked into and had actually tested. Recently. This is actually linked directly to their site uh, from Felix Krauss, and uh, basically what he found was that you can actually go ahead and use the CG window list create image functionality inside of an application, even if it's sandboxed, which means as a sandbox, it should only be able to access its own memory space, its own functionality, uh, and maybe make some calls down to the operating system to actually allow it to maybe do networking level stuff, right? Like being able to reach out to the web if it needs to grab a extension, for example. But otherwise that it shouldn't be able to access operating system level requests or commands. And as it turns out, using the CG window list create image functionality, you can not only take screenshots of your Mac silently without any, without any kind of sound or knowledge, but it can also access every pixel, even if the Mac app is in the background. It can use basic OCR software to read the text on the screen, and it can access all monitors that are connected to the MacBook, wow. uh, which in my mind is like, that is just straight fire. And I don't know if this is on just High Sierra, if this is on all versions. Uh, from what I could tell, it looked like it was all versions. Uh, but again, this is just one of those things where Yet again, real bad. Sounds like a feature. <laughs> Screenshots for everyone. Considered a feature at some point, right? I mean, like if you think about it, like how does this sort of thing come about? And it, it probably has something to do with uh, a lot of the checks that take place in the CG window list create image library that should otherwise check: is this a sandbox application or not, or does this um, does this process have the right to make this request? And I imagine that it was probably one of those things buried deep in the code base that has probably been around for a while. It would be my guess, just given what it sounds like it can do. Uh, and it was probably the basis for a lot of the screenshot or even the snapshot functionality that you're allowed to use today. So I'll be really interested to see if they end up uh, fixing this or if they end up making any sort of changes to that library. Uh, if they do, I doubt we will actually hear anything loud about it because Apple tends to be pretty quiet about these kind of bug fixes. Mm. Interesting. Uh, 
from there, Paul, I know that last year you covered the, I think it was the Blueborn vulnerability, which is what is related to, I believe, here uh, for Lenovo. Uh, so that was a, I believe at that point, like a Wi-Fi Bluetooth level vulnerability that allowed some sort of, I think it was remote code execution or some sort of like um, bypass access to devices. And as it turns out, Lenovo uh, has revealed that its Wi-Fi chipset is actually vulnerable to CVE 2017 uh, 11.120 and 11.121, uh, which are patched by both Apple and Google in September. Uh, and as it appears is now also in the Broadcom wireless LAN drivers for Lenovo. Uh, now we're like, what, four months, five months since that came out? I'm surprised it has taken them so long to figure out that they were vulnerable to this. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I, I that's really puzzling. Um, do you think Broadcom gives access to the source code to Google, Apple, and Lenovo so that they can integrate it into their systems? Or are they just giving them a binary blob? That's a really good question. And, and my guess would be they are probably either giving them a binary blob or they're using some sort of like, uh, here is the API documentation that you can use to make requests of the chipset without giving them the underlying code, right? Like mm. that would be my guess. Uh, now, Google and Apple, of course, I, I feel like are probably much larger companies than Lenovo. So they might actually have access to the source code based on the fact that, you know, they're the 800 pound gorillas in the room. They can throw their weight around. Uh, Lenovo goes and asks for that. I doubt that they, they are given that sort of uh, kind of play when it comes to, yeah, you're Lenovo. We deal with HP and Dell and all these other companies too. Uh, so here's the API. Thank you very much. Yeah, Broadcom's been not willing to play ball with their drivers. Um, the ch wireless chipsets on like Linksys routers back in the day when Larry and I wrote the book, uh, largely, I believe, were Broadcom. And that was an issue because nobody had the source code. And all of the efforts were like reverse engineering their drivers to make their Wi-Fi cards work. And that was just a train wreck. And then the issue that arises is when you get a binary blob, let's say then you've got to update your kernel uh, to your firmware and it's not compatible with the binary blob. So because you, you have to recompile the driver to work with the latest kernel and you can't do that because you don't have the source code. So you have to wait for Broadcom to release a new version of the driver. So uh, running on the assumption that it is a binary blob, Lenovo should have seen this and fixed it a, a long time ago. Conceivably, Broadcom probably issued a new binary blob. Maybe they were testing it. Maybe they knew about it. I mean, who knows? Uh, this is an area that I've dealt with again when we were researching wireless routers and you want to put open source uh, firmware and software on your wireless router, but the wireless chipset is proprietary and has a proprietary driver. And that's why some model of routers, you can't actually do that because you don't have enough uh, of the pieces to be able to integrate their uh, proprietary drivers into your code. And what's interesting about specifically this situation is uh, Lenovo initially had a list uh, of ThinkPads that were vulnerable to uh, the Broadcom wireless LAN driver vulnerabilities in Windows 10. Uh, it looks like they've actually expanded that list with over two dozen ThinkPads uh, that use the Broadcom VCM4356 wireless LAN driver. So it makes me also wonder too, Paul, how much of this is like a, an inventory problem, right? So they didn't yes. necessarily check other assets that they've sold in the recent past for the vulnerability. Maybe they just hit the critical ones first and they're now doing some due diligence. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. If you want to learn more, you can actually Google for BCM4356 
uh, and, and look at all the people that have been looking at it. Like there's a post on an Ubuntu forum. It says, hey, I got a Lenovo with this, you know, uh, chipset. How, like, how do I get it working? Um, it looks like there is some Linux kernel source code uh, that was developed. But again, that could be um, something that someone reverse engineered the binary blob and tried to recreate the drivers. Those tend to be somewhat problematic. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's interesting to wireless drivers have always been something that is pretty fascinating. And something that it's it, uh, my take on it is it's not really easy code to write either and, and, and keep uh, vulnerabilities out of. So, for sure. And, and quite frankly, I mean, uh, the other interesting side of this is, as you and I both know, Linux uh, and wireless is not always played well. So, uh, it's gotten it's better over the years. Specific to Windows 10. Yeah. Larry is, um, and, and Josh, right, keep up on that a lot more than I have been, certainly. Uh, it, it has gotten better, but, you know, they can they could fill you in on all the wireless driver back in the day. It was a nightmare. Yeah. And even still, I mean, depending on the, uh, the actual chipset you're using, it sounds like it can still be a nightmare, uh, according to that Ubuntu post. But it's um, interesting that source... I was just going to say, I, I do also find it interesting that Lenovo seems to have not been aware of all of their model laptops that are using BCM four, three, five, six. You think right, that would like be... that's an inventory problem, right? right? And that's, yeah. That's what gets me. That's what's uh, that's what's interesting about the whole situation is two dozen additional models now going on four or five months later. Like, really? Uh, I mean, sometimes there's different versions of the, the, the chipsets are really, there's a whole, we could do a whole show just on wireless chipsets, to be honest with you. Um, because they're going to use whatever's cheapest and then for like one model and then like a new version of that chipset may come out and that's a little cheaper. So we'll switch to that one. And then maybe we'll go to a totally different manufacturer. I think the primary factor behind that decision of what chipset to use is cost. Like what can they get manufactured uh, the cheapest? Certainly when it relates to wireless routers that you want to sell for 80 bucks online, you know what I mean? So, um, right. and I think it's a similar thing inside laptops. Makes sense. Makes sense. Speaking of source code, by the way, Paul, uh, a very interesting thing happened recently with a GitHub account related to uh, a Go code package. Uh, so you probably remember, I think it was last year or the year before in 2016, when NPM repositories were basically broken because of a left pad uh, JavaScript library that was removed by the actual creator. Uh, so I don't know. Do you recall that story, Paul? Do you I remember don't. how that was breaking everything? Nope. <laughs> okay, well, sorry. Uh, that's okay. It's okay. I, I mean, being a developer, I was paying attention to it. Um, so what it was is, uh, so back in 2016, a, uh, a developer, Azer uh, Kochulu, I am probably mispronouncing the last name, uh, they had basically written a left pad library that was used, uh, bundled into other code sets and other frameworks, etc. inside of JavaScript. And it was basically intended to left pad your code base. Uh, so that you could actually have kind of things line up appropriately uh, when you were writing some JavaScript uh, specifically to Node. Uh, similarly, what has recently happened was uh, Jim uh, Tuen, uh, who maintained a GitHub repository tool called Go-Bin Data, probably for binary data and, and maybe even reading binary data, uh, was embedded uh, for uh, like an embedded data for Go binaries. And what ended up happening is that individual deleted their GitHub account. Uh, and as a result, for those organizations that pulled that library directly from GitHub, 
their uh, products were effectively broken, right? Because mm -hmm. they didn't actually pull that down locally and then pull it from a, a local library. They were pulling it straight from GitHub. The really interesting and scary uh, situation here that happened, though, was an unidentified developer whose Go project stopped functioning as a result of the closure of that GitHub account, opened a new GitHub account under that abandoned username mm -hmm. and repopulated it with a forked version of that package. That is just rife with possibilities for nightmares. Can you imagine if they had put in some sort of malicious package in place of it? Well, I can, and I, I think that's why when we talk about uh, software architecture that's pulling down code from Git. And I think this extends out, correct me if I'm wrong, into Docker as well, because I'm pulling down um, Docker images from uh, open repositories. I don't want to just pull that stuff from Git in Docker public repositories and then automatically just put that in my production code. Because like you said, uh, there's two issues that happen. One, there could be code in there that causes it to crash. Uh, and two, there could be security uh, implications, vulnerabilities, and or backdoors put in there on purpose. And the strategy that I, I think is in, in wide acceptance, I'm not sure how uh, widely adopted it is, but I think the logical thing to do is to pull down your, your Git repositories and pull down your, your Docker images, run them through a process of like almost like pre-QA, uh, maybe even a diffing process, like, hey, what changed since the previous version? And in an automated fashion, be able to make some assumptions, like run it through some basic security testing, run it through some basic unit testing, do some basic diffing on it, figure out what changed, uh, and then have an approval and say, okay, yeah, now it's good to, to push in. Uh, you know, automatically detecting backdoors, uh, probably your mileage is going to vary depending on what you're looking for. That seems to be the more accepted practice is you pull down and you do some own testing yourself before you even put that into any of your build process. So I think that that would be, it would be nice if that was the most widely adopted process out there. I don't know that it is, quite frankly. Uh, and the reason that I say that is because developers need to develop functionality and sometimes they take shortcuts because, oh, it's on GitHub. Therefore, it, we believe it's going to be reliably on GitHub and right. controlled by that individual. Therefore, we're going to be okay with just pulling it straight from GitHub. Uh, what is interesting is is kind of two things, which is first, uh, putting code signing in so that you can guarantee that the source that is producing the code is, in fact, the source that has been producing the code from the get-go. Uh, and then also, like you've, you've kind of uh, given hint to, is like file integrity checking, making sure that the things that are coming through are, in fact, uh, you know, checking out from a testing perspective as well. So the thing that I, I really want to highlight on here is that GitHub's uh, like user account creation abilities, the ability to recreate a, a dead account, to me is just really, really bad handling of user registration and user access. Um, yeah, that is I like, the most important thing here. If I delete an account, I'm not sure how this is handled by all the different providers. I know in some circumstances, like that's basically blacklisted forever. I got to say, yeah, that's done. Yep, like if I create an account with a name and then I delete it, like that's it. I've used up uh, that namespace. It'd be interesting to have someone on from, you know, like a, a large company like Twitter or GitHub or uh, Google and, and talk about like, how, so how do you manage, 
manage that first account creation process to make sure you're validating. We talked to touched on a little last night about, you know, creating new Facebook accounts now requires like an ID and a picture and all this stuff. How do you balance that with making it easy for users to create accounts? But then also how do you deal with the, once they delete it? Um, if you're weak in all those areas and it's easy to create a new account and easy to delete an account, you could start eating up a lot of namespace and that could potentially become problematic. I'm not, I'm not sure though. I'd, I'd like to bring someone on to talk about that. I think it's fascinating. Absolutely. And especially because uh, we've seen things like domain squatting, right? Like it's similar to yeah. like maybe user handle squatting uh, as, a, as another example. And especially if you've deleted an account and it's able to be re-registered at a later time without any sort of vetting process. Like if I accidentally delete an account, which by the way, shouldn't really be easy to do to begin with. But if I accidentally deleted an account, recovery should be an option for me, but there should be a rigorous validating process that takes mm -hmm. place before that is able to be returned to me in some fashion. Right. Uh, so moving on, because I know that we're somewhat limited for time, uh, I wanted to highlight, speaking of kind of code gone awry, I don't know if you caught the UK government websites uh, who were actually serving up crypto mining uh, software through a common package called Browse Allowed, uh, which I thought was very interesting. Paul, did you get a chance to see this at all? I haven't, no. I know that um, this is becoming uh, more of a trend, which is kind of interesting. Uh, on multiple fronts, right? So the salon website that offered you that choice between like, hey, you can run your ad blocker, that's fine. But if you do, you got to help us mine some cryptocurrency, which I think is just poor uh, choices. And then municipalities tend, I think over time, you know, doing these shows for now our 14th year, it seems to be a trend that uh, city and local state governments don't have the resources to properly secure their stuff due to all different kinds of funding uh, and different states have different funding issues. Uh, but in, uh, for an example of it going really bad, uh, kind of similar to here is in Washington state where marijuana is legal, their registration uh, for the uh, transportation and registration of who's, you know, growing and transporting marijuana in the state, they broke into that database, but they didn't steal the PII of the people who are registered, they stole the data that was related to when shipments would be happening, date and time, and where they would be going to and from. Uh, obviously, to potentially hijack a shipment if you know where the shipments are going to be. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, they didn't even care about the PII, which which could be problematic in and of itself. They only cared about attacking the the shipments. So. Uh, those are just two stories that came to mind when when I read this one from from Wired. And the way that I look at these is this is kind of like a, a supply chain attack or a watering hole attack, where if you poison just one package, the impact is huge. And in fact, I remember, uh, I think it was a few episodes back now, Paul, there was that uh, kind of fictional event that someone wrote where they had effectively poisoned an NPM package that got pulled into other NPM packages. Uh, this is kind of a similar story of a different kind where someone was able to break into browse aloud and instead of stealing, you know, data or any of that other stuff, they simply, uh, injected malicious code into the library that was being pulled down everywhere else and let it run crypto mining, uh, software, which is in itself, you, it's like, how do you deal with a situation where you can't trust the supplier of code if like it's used all over the place. Uh, so it's again, maybe checking the, that you have local versions, seeing what has changed. 
uh, doing all sorts of good internal practices for file integrity checking and code signing uh, before you actually pull down and start using these things live in production. The scary part uh, for me, is, Keith, is that uh, companies that it's critical to their business to create software and allow people to use their software, I think are better poised than ever and certainly have more tools and techniques and processes available to make that software more secure than ever before. I mean, we talked about the DevOps process and Docker and all of these different points in which the, the SDLC uh, can certainly benefit from security, including we've already talked about how to verify kind of third-party sources, third-party APIs we've touched on before as well. However, when you're a municipality, your goal in life is not to create and use and secure software. And, and this is where uh, attackers, I think, are, are going to have a field day for quite some time when it's not your, your mission to deploy the software or secure the software. Uh, that can be problematic. And, and your implementation could further weaken some of the security controls that may have been put in place by the vendor, or maybe you have an internal development team uh, that's helping with that. And I just feel like municipalities especially are just not in the, a good position to do all of those things. Hopefully over time that process gets easier, right? And it trickles down. I think we saw that with Microsoft over the past you know, 15 or 20 years. Certainly they uh, cleaned a whole bunch of stuff up in their security processes and, and it served as a model and it started to trickle down. Um, but I think we're a ways away for some of the smaller uh, organizations whose goal it is not to produce software, but to, you know, some other kind of goal and actually apply uh, software security. Yeah, it's kind of like the idea of trusting trust. You have to trust somewhere at some point in your line of building code or pulling in code, whether it's the compiler or the libraries that you're pulling in for a front end web, uh, web platform of some kind, right? So to this end, it's it really putting the onus back on those uh, producers of the code that is used broadly to make sure that you're doing everything you can to secure access to your code base, to make sure that it is securely updated and that you can monitor those updates to that code base uh, for the right people uh, doing that sort of thing at the right time. Uh, I can only imagine that two-factor authentication should be really used everywhere for uh, anybody that's doing any sort of code changes or has control over code used across sure. a variety of different applications. Yeah, I think that helps. I mean, that can also still be very much circumvented uh, and certainly not a silver bullet. There's just a lot of moving parts. I mean, Chrome is a prime example. You've got Google trying to secure the platform in various different ways. Um, you've got end users that are just downloading all of these extensions willy-nilly, and there's no verification process on the end user uh, to really help them. And then you've got people who are developing uh, those extensions that are either developing vulnerable extensions or getting pwned and someone else is putting code inside their extensions, which is going in the platform. Google doesn't catch everything. So malicious extensions end up in there. And then the user doesn't have, in my opinion, very good tools to identify a malicious extension once it gets into Chrome. It's a similar kind of problem when you're building an application. You're building, you know, building in your Lego blocks and, and you have a similar kind of problem. Except a lot sure. of times you don't have Google helping you secure the platform because you're using like WordPress, which is a really bad example of, or a really good example of something really vulnerable <laughs> that has a similar process of plugins and a platform and, and the user uh, validation issues. And makes up something like 15% of the internet, by the way, just right. think about that for a minute, mm -hmm. um, how big the internet is. Um, speaking of Google, and in this case, also Facebook, uh, interestingly, I wanted to jump to story number five uh, under the section for if you build it, they will come. So Unilever, which has an ad budget of $9.8 billion, 25% of which are used on digital ads, 
is telling Facebook and Google to clean up or they're pulling ads, uh, which I thought was really, really a huge move uh, by Unilever because they basically said, look, you guys are promoting fake news, racism, sexism, and extremism. And quite frankly, unless you clean up, we're taking our money elsewhere. Um, that is absolutely huge. And uh, to me, like speaks volumes. What do you think about that uh, story, Paul? It explains um, the story I read this week where Google's going to take a, a stronger stance on ad blocking inside of uh, Chrome. And now I think I understand what, what Fuel did as well. I also think that, of course, Facebook has come under scrutiny, um, you know, with the Russians taking out ads to try and impact the election. I think there's still fallout from that as well. Facebook and Google have the uh, toughest time with this problem because they have it at such a massive massive scale across multiple properties uh that are in and of itself even their sub properties like google's youtube and facebook's instagram have this problem 10 20 fold above and beyond other other companies so this is going to be an interesting one to watch for sure and especially with uh there have been a number of stories lately about kind of the internal struggles and changes that have been taking place at facebook uh, over the last two years, just as a result of everything that happened with the election. So yep. uh, it'll be very interesting to see how the cultures inside of the organizations change, uh, as well as the sort of functionality and uh, kind of the the way in which they approach this problem going forward. Uh, Paul, if we have time, I did want to cover one more story sure, related to WordPress that I thought you might find interesting. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so Amazon has actually recently launched a plugin for WordPress uh, called Poly that turns blog posts into audio, including podcasts. Hmm. Uh, so what they actually did is they launched a, a WordPress plugin that has, I believe, something like 47 male and female voices supported in 24 different languages that effectively can take your WordPress blog posts and turn them into a polycast podcast on Amazon, uh, which I thought was really interesting. What are your thoughts there, Paul, especially given that it's in WordPress? Yeah, I think... Well, I, I think it's just interesting from a user perspective. I mean, I listen to most of my books um, and I, I start to wonder, like, when you write, do you have to write in a certain way so that the spoken audio is easily consumable by the human ear and the human brain? Um, I think it would be kind of interesting, though, if that wasn't too awkward uh, to be able to listen to my blog posts, just like blo just like podcasts. I think that's kind of interesting. Um, I don't know. I think it's I think it's better the other way, uh, to be honest with you, to take the spoken word and, and turn it into a transcript. Um, which you know, stay tuned for for more on that. But uh, I think I think that's pretty interesting. And for me, I think that what is lost in translation as a result of a blog versus spoken word, for example, is you and I both use ums and ahs and other pauses in the way in which we say things that gives it certain character. It really makes it ours, right? And so to that end, I, I wonder if that sort of, uh, I don't know, experience will yeah. change as a result of users uh, leveraging this plugin to take their blogs, which are written uh, for prose and for consumption visually into uh, some sort of spoken word, especially given the number of languages and dialects that they have this in. And I think so many you know, blogs that we, blog posts that we read are somewhat technical in nature too or rely, like you said, on that visual aspect, you know, have a diagram or some kind of picture that is reinforcing the visual. Translating that into audio doesn't necessarily make sense. 
No, no. Especially when you're trying to describe something, whiteboards, uh, the reason that they're so, uh, I don't know, ubiquitous inside of the development world and even in sometimes security space is for the effectiveness of the visual aspects that they bring uh, that is not easily translated into spoken word. What I, what I would love, and I actually heard, uh, you know, this week in Tech on the Twit Network talk about this years ago, and I, I don't think any of this technology has caught on. It'd be interesting from an application perspective to understand some of the challenges. But, you know, like even here in Security Weekly, we've got audio content, we've got video content, and now we're going to have some written content, more, more structured rich, written content. How do you consume all that? I mean, not at once, but present all of that so that you can listen, you can watch, or you can read, and you can bounce back and forth between all those different uh, mediums, uh, you know, on your tablet or your phone or something like that. I think that would be really cool technology. I'm sure there are people uh, working on it. I'm not sure. It, it, nothing like mainstream or anything that I've ever seen has come close to, uh, to doing that. So. Yeah, that unified experience of consumption is, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if we actually see Google and Facebook ironically move to that that realm in some way, because that's really what they are, is they're built for consumption. Right. Cool. Well, with that, thank you everyone for joining us this week for another episode of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get commit and stay classy. <laughs>